everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the Double L team, Larland. Lawson. Lawson. How are you this morning? I'm great. What are you thankful for this morning? I am awake. I'm here. I'm alive. And I've been getting involved recently in just a whole bunch of Bible studies. And That's it's cool. been really good. Like that is my job kind of to, to give Bible studies to people. Um, it's, you know, become difficult as of recent to be able to, you know, over the last couple of months to, you know, gain new people and meet new people who are interested in doing Bible studies. Uh, even though, yeah, God has been bringing them to us. And yeah, just recently I've been just flat out with Bible studies and I've been like, Oh man, I have to, schedule my time in such a way to where I can make everything work because I have a group of people who want to learn about Jesus and have a desire to follow him. So I'm just stoked. I'm just that's fantastic. living my best that's, life. That's like the best kind of uh, the best kind of thing to be thankful for is just <laughs> sharing the Bible with people. That's right. I'm super thankful that I um, I receive monetary increase just to tell people about the Bible. <laughs> that's, the it's, it's, that's the best life. It's the bomb. What about you, Lyle? Well, you I, I don't know. It's one? pretty hard to top that one. <laughs> it's like, how do you actually top that? Oh, we've got a great small group happening at the moment, um, small group Bible study happening. We're going through the book of Revelation, which is pretty awesome. Oh, epic. And uh, there's, a, there's a rumor floating around. I'm not sure how good the rumor is, but I'm thinking it's about 90% at the moment that I'll actually be teaching Revelation at Arise this coming year. Oh, totally. Oh, so okay. that could be that could be different. Normally, I teach Daniel. Mm-hmm. Maybe this year I'll be teaching Revelation. I've not taught yeah. Revelation at a rise. I'm going to teach Daniel. You're going to be teaching Daniel. At- no, I don't know that. I just, I'm just. You should. I- <laughs> I'll give you all my notes. You can plagiarize. <laughs> yeah, that's right, dude. That isn't that the way. No, wait. Pl- it doesn't plagiarism mean we're bad preachers. No, plagiarism means that you're a wise preacher. <laughs> You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Ah, fantastic stuff. All right, make sure you give us a call. That'll be an easy one to get. Lawson, what's happening in the world of positively different news? Okay, so a study has been done at Oxford University that has found that there is no link between exercise and developing arthritis in the knee, according to new research at the University of Oxford. Um, and I feel like they need to come and tell my knees that because my knees very much don't feel great. Uh, but in the UK, approximately one in 10 adults have symptomatically, cl- symptomatic clinically diagnosed osteoarthritis, uh, within, in, within the knee being the most common. So they just study it with 5,000 participants over the span of around five to 12 years, depending on that participant, looking at how they spent time exercising in recreation, uh, whether it was running or cycling or swimming or other sports and found that even like a high, a, 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 what would be considered a high impact sport like running um, had little to no impact on the knee, but they say that any occupation that involves heavy physical, uh, heavy physical workload, kneeling, whole body vibration, or repetitive movements is still risky. Now, this gives me hope yes. in the future. Yes. Um, because, well, in the sense that, so m- both of my knees are very much destroyed. Like from motorbike racing, I actually, I tweaked my knee the other day when I was riding my motorbike in the bush, and I've been like kind of 
half hobbling for the last three weeks. I, I'm in desperate need. There's, there's, there's this, there is such a thing as too much motorbike riding. That's right. I'm in desperate need of an MRI. And I have been since I've 16. Like my right knee since I was about 15, 16 has had limited movement. I haven't been able to, to use it all the way. And so I am, I am quickly coming up. I think, you know, I reckon in the next couple of years on some, some knee reconstructions Ouch. at a very Ouch. young age, Ouch. uh, because they're just, they're just gone skis, bro, from motorbike crashes, from all kinds of things. Um, but it looks here, the good news is that if I get a knee reconstruction, I won't be, you know, like, cause now I'm not like going and motorbike riding a ton anymore and, and doing things where I'm like willingly put my, putting my knees in harm's way. So I'm like looking at a future for myself where I'm not going to have to worry about my knees after they get reconstruction, reconstructed, which is, which is good for me. That, that being said though, it still says that, you know, if you're like a bricklayer and you're just like carrying stuff and kneeling all the time or whatever it may be, that's pretty, it's pretty gnarly. So watch out, watch yourself. Um, but yeah, the Thomas Perry from the University of Oxford, it says these findings suggest that physical activity as defined by the whole body, physiological energy expenditure during sport, walking, cycling activities is not associated with knee osteoarthritis. In fact, the opposite. You should be getting out there using those knees, you know, to keep them warmed up and stretched and healthy and and I think that's the important thing is that um, it's, it's always important to stretch and warm up before you sort of go thrashing them. Oh, totally. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then just... You do this before you go motorbike riding, right? Uh, <laughs> you, well, you can do it whilst you're motorbike riding. <laughs> no, the, the problem is, is like, I've just copped a bunch of gnarly impacts. Like that's... Yes. I think... Oh, I don't know about my right knee. My right knee more just has a kind of seizure problem. My left knee... Actually, yeah, I did this... I had a, like a weird motorbike thing, like three weeks ago and it's still like really painful and I can't mm. kneel. And so I'm like, uh, I'm in the next couple of weeks, I'm going to book myself an MRI. So, so, so you're one of these people in church when everybody kneels for prayer, you just hang out with all the old people? That no, kneel? I kneel, but like for the last couple of weeks, I've been kneeling and then just like, but going kind of on one knee. And then during the prayer, I can't really focus. If, if I, I go on two knees, but then during the prayer, I can't really focus because I'm just thinking the whole time like, oh man, my knee really hurts. But then I'm like, but this is worth it because God is so good. And I, and I keep praying, but... I'm definitely in need. Okay, hey, La, remember how we had a conversation yesterday? I believe it was yesterday. We were talking about electric vehicles. Yes, and we hydrogen. Were. We were. Different places around the world doing yes. different things. And we talked about we had this conversation where we we're like, oh well, you know, in in America and then the in you know Europe it's gonna be easy, relatively easy to phase electric vehicles in. Particularly I think of a country like the UK, right? It's yes. tiny. Like they can just go and Chuck electric vehicles in there, but we made the express point. It was like, okay, but in countries like Australia and like Africa, where you've just got big and wide open spaces, like it's just going to be a massive struggle. And that's why in its initial release, um, at least up until 2035, which is the targets for a lot of these countries, it's not going to be happening in Australia and it's not going to be happening as much in Africa. Well, I've got a story here from Rwanda, which is essentially that the uh, the motorbike taxi industry is being revolutionised by electric vehicles. That's cool. So in the capital of Kilgali, uh, Kigali, they have 25,000 motorbike taxis 
which is legit. Like, you just jump on the back of a motorbike with no helmet on. Yeah, we've been to a few developing countries, but I don't remember seeing motorbike taxis. They're more like yeah. the little badgers. They've and- got, like, badgers and tuk-tuks and stuff like that. No, yeah. kill- Which you actually sit in the back of. But they, there you just jump on the back of the yeah, motorbike. Yeah, I think because the population's so high, they're like, oh, let's not congest the, the roads. Yeah, yeah. They're like, let's just... let's Because your tuk-tuks and badgers, they only go slow... And they do take up more space. More space. So, that, like, over there, and I think it's pretty similar in, like, Ho Chi Minh City and whatnot. Like, Ho Chi Minh City has, like, like four million motorbikes. Yes. In one, it's just wild. And that, that's, that's, uh, that's probably because they've got, uh, you know, 20 million people. And that's, that's right. And that's enough motorbikes for everybody to ride on them. Yeah. <laughs> that's correct. Because <laughs> you can put five people on a scooter in some of these, <laughs> Dude, some totally. of these countries. There's been countries I've been to. It's like, yep, there goes the whole it's, family. It's five people on a scooter and then they, like, got a pole across all of them that have all the groceries yes. on there. Like, it's classic. <laughs> but in Kilgali, uh, one of the firms that, you know, runs taxis called Ampersand, they are using electric vehicles now they are phasing them in um and apparently you know the 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 motorbike taxi riders there they're they're really enjoying them at first there are like we've got this kind of testimony from this dude who's like yeah it was kind of annoying at first because i'd be taking someone somewhere and then it would just cut off and i didn't know what to do with it like obviously they didn't have that experience with electric vehicles but now they reckon it's the bomb but one of the big things that this guy made mention of and that is so awesome about electric vehicles is that you have so few moving parts within the engine like like i could think about an electric motorbike you've got like a battery that's connected to like a, a motor like a something that just essentially drives the wheel yeah, there's a lot of there's yeah yeah there's a lot of moving parts in an internal combustion it, dude, engine you, gearbox you know man i've been looking everything. at them i pulled the motor out of my bike and it's just like a confusing mess like i you know once you become experienced and familiar then you're like oh yeah this makes sense but dude valves and pistons and cranes everything's and moving everything, everything is, is moving. just moving all the time and that's why it's so necessary to do oil changes all the time and to just be so on top of bike maintenance is because like, or car maintenance is because if you don't do it, that one moving part that isn't getting enough oil or grease or whatever will fail. And then the whole engine will die. Whereas with electric, electric bikes and electric cars, like there's so few moving parts. It's just a battery connected to something that spins connected to the back wheel that they're, they're loving it, mate. So dude, the revolution is happening in Rwanda in, in Africa, they probably have more electric vehicles over there than here in Newcastle. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this. You know, with the price the price of fuel going up, I mean, it's going to be a little bit like solar. You push the price of electricity up, everybody goes electric. Electric push the price of fuel up, everyone's going to go electric. Yeah, that's right. So that's how it goes? That's that is that's the deal. So, um, also in electric vehicle news, a, and this this one's interesting because um, th- it's basically like. A bit of a David versus Goliath story. This company called Rivian has beaten Tesla and Ford and Chevy and all of those countries to the market with the first electric pickup truck. They've beaten them and now they've secured like $12 billion in investment and they're going to start shipping worldwide. So I'm kind of like, oh man, I want an electric, you know, I want an electric ute here in Australia. So I guess that's, that's what it's looking like in the future. Right. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, all right, let's, uh, we should talk about some more serious news. Mm-hmm. And I did promise that we would talk about poo. Yep. So here we go. Epic. 
the University of California and the, Uni- and the and Columbia University have teamed up together to do some research on the amount of poo that is entering our oceans and the effect that it is having uh, around the world. And in doing so, they looked at 135 watersheds, basically uh, rivers mm-hmm. that are the, the biggest rivers in the world that actually are carrying a load of fecal material, otherwise known as sewage. And to just have a look at what that actually does as it flows out into the into the ocean, what they found was that twenty just twenty five. So they studied studied one hundred thirty five thousand uh, watersheds. Just twenty five rivers carry half of the world's sewage. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's intense. That's very intense. The Yangtze River in China alone carries eleven percent of the world's total sewage. I'm I'm going to assume that place smells pretty bad. Well, I'm going to assume that if I go there, I'm not going to go for a swim. <laughs> um, the, 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 the water systems that carry the most sewage is uh, China, followed by India, followed by the USA, and that kind of makes sense. These are, you know, the three, three, large, three very large nations geographically and large nations population-wise. Mm. I think the top three nations as far as population. So it's directly... Uh, connected to population. Um, one third of all sewage that goes out into our oceans is completely untreated. It's what's called raw sewage, um, has not been treated whatsoever at all. And the most damaging thing about sewage is the nitrogen that it carries. So it carries a lot of nitrogen with it, and that's what really damages the ocean. What's interesting about the nitrogen, of course, is that it's not affected by treatment. So in the treatment plants, what they're not removing nitrogen. Mm. You know, they certainly they make the the water quality better to be able to be released into the ocean, but they're not removing any of the nitrogen. And what happens is that when you have a a lot of nitrogen goes into into the ocean, you have massive algae blooms, and what that creates is a massive depletion of oxygen in the water, which then kills off fish and it kills off uh, corals and you know mm. all of those kinds of all of those kinds of problems. And so this is a bit of a problem for uh, for our world. Now, if you compare what this is a really interesting um, thing that they found that they were not expecting to find. If you compare the Yangtze River with the Brahma Putra River, which flows through Tibet, India and Bangladesh. So these are two fairly comparable rivers. They are flowing through comparable population sizes. Uh, they are throwing, flowing through you know, Asian countries. Mm. And what they found was that the Yangtze is carrying infinitely higher levels of uh, nitrogen than the uh, Brahmaputra River. And so then they discovered, well, then they decided, okay, we're going to find out why is there so much more nitrogen in the Yangtze because they're, they're both carrying a similar amount. You know, the Yangtze is definitely carrying more uh, sewage, but they're carrying a similar amount of mm. sewage. They're, they're comparable rivers. And so they wanted to know why is the nitrogen level just off the charts in China compared to uh, Tibet, India, and Bangladesh. And you know what they found out? What did they find out? They found out that as China has become more developed and people in China have become wealthier, their diet has changed. Okay. And uh, their diet has changed so that they are having a much, much higher meat diet than what they were before. Mm. So historically, a lot of uh, Chinese, you know, would live off rice. You know, rice was their staple and... uh, 
they would add to that rice. You know, occasionally they might be able to afford a bit of meat to add to that rice, but, mm. you know, not so often. Mostly it was just vegetables and so forth. But that's what brings the culture, if you've been to China, where they eat anything. It's kind of like, no, like it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. That that's the reality is that like because of their cultural history as having rice as a whole food base, yes, and then just adding what could be added, whatever can whatever can be found, yeah, whatever can be. Burnt. Well, what they found is that uh, with the with the growing affluence of China, mm. there's a lot less rice being eaten and a lot more meat being eaten. Yes. And so that has what has changed the balance of the nitrogen in the river. Mm. Whereas when you go to Tibet, India and Bangladesh, these are still three unbelievably poor countries mm. and poor people can't afford to eat meat. Um, and so they just eat a lot more rice and vegetables and so forth because it is a much, much less expensive way to live. And so those countries have actually much lower nitrogen. So, so that what basically what they said was the best thing that you can do other than just, you know, reducing the population of the world dramatically. But the most effective thing that we can do to affect the health of our oceans as far as our sewage goes is to stop eating meat. So another another great reason right well, there to become a vegetarian. There you go. <laughs> now, I didn't become a vegetarian for this reason. I became a vegetarian for my health, mm. and it's been an amazing decision. It's been fantastic for my health. But there's a bunch of environmental reasons why being a vegetarian is just a good thing. Mm. So much less nitrogen in the ocean. Okay, so, uh, of course, Australia, they looked at Australia, and uh-huh. Australia has, uh, so if you are worried about going down to the beach and going for a swim, worry no more. We have the lowest uh, pollution in the world from our rivers, as in sewage going into the ocean of anywhere, mm. and that comes down to a very small population, a very large continent, and a lot of coastline, and some of the highest we have, you know, we're doing really well as far as treatment goes. Mm. We've got some of the best quality yeah, well, anywhere in the world. serious stuff. Yeah. Mm. All right, so the most effective thing that you can do is to uh, go veg. And the now, real reason Lyle did that is so that he could have a carbon offset to drive a lots V8. of lots That's cars. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> of course. All right, so there's um, talking about rivers, there's a vast stretch of the Yamuna River mm. that is covered in toxic foam right now. And this toxic foam is Ooh. up to one and a half metres thick. And, of course, this is the river that flows through New Delhi in India. Mm. Um, and it comes from, you know, a ring of industrial plants that are just, you know, right around New Delhi and all of their pollution is going straight into the river. It's illegal to do so, but it's not a law that has ever been enforced. And so it's just, it's just pouring into the river. But last Wednesday, the river was full of worshippers who, some of them who were immersing themselves, um, because this is one of the most sacred rivers, uh, in India. And this was for the Hindu festival of Chath Puja, um, where they worship a solar deity, sun god, effectively. Mm -hmm. And they do that by going to the river and saying prayers and immersing themselves in the river. Uh, This particular river is 1,376 kilometers long. It's considered to be the holiest or one of the holiest rivers amongst Hindus. And it is by far the most polluted. It provides New Delhi with about half of its water. So if you're travelling to New Delhi, think about that uh, before you turn the tap do, on do and pour yourself a get glass of water. Sick? Oh, very. Um, this is one of the largest cities. This, this is a city of more than 20 million people. Mm. It it not only has it is basically has the worst pollution of anywhere. Mm. It has the worst air quality of anywhere on the planet. 
Uh, yet people, they still go to the river and they are fully aware of how polluted the river is. But you ask them about it and they're like, why would we, why would we be afraid? How can, how can we pray? If we if we don't go in the river, mm. and it sort of you know it made me stop and think. I'm like, okay, how many Christians would uh, be prepared to take those kinds of risks if it was necessary to be able to worship God? And what kind of risks are we prepared to take mm. to worship God? Now, thankfully, God doesn't ask us to go and jump into a polluted river, but there are times when God does call on us to take risks on His mm. behalf, and. Uh, you know, we live in such a risk-averse society these days. It does just kind of make me wonder. You know, what should we, uh, what, what, what should we, what should we be prepared to do for Jesus Christ? Mm. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Well, joining us on the phone this morning is an old friend of mine, somebody that I've known since, oh, the mid-1990s at least, and have worked for on two occasions. So, Neil Schofield, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lyle. It's good to be here. Fantastic. Now, Neil, it's been a while since we've caught up and actually sat down and had a bit of a chat together, and that's because you've been away, you've been overseas. What have you been doing, what have you been up to over the last few years? Tell us, take us on a bit of a journey of uh, of some of the adventures that you've been having. Well, I started off in London and uh, studied at the uh, at King's College in London in their school of uh, theology, and also the National Gallery of London, the uh, the famous art museum. And there I was looking at how, uh, throughout history, works of art have been used to really communicate biblical stories. And so uh, that was a master's degree at, at King's College. And then from there, I moved on to the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, which uh, I don't know how many of your listeners have been there, but St Andrews is a, a glorious place to to uh, visit and uh, live. And there I um, have been, uh, I've just completed a, a, a doctorate at the uh, Reformation Studies Institute. So as I looked around the world, the, uh, the University of St Andrews has, well, in my view, the, the best place for studying Protestant uh, Reformation history. And so, uh, yeah, I've just returned from there. Yeah, that sounds like uh, just an amazing adventure. I understand you spent some time as a result of your uh, studies, you know, your PhD, uh, putting your thesis together. I, I understand you spent some time living in uh, Wittenberg, which really, you know, that's in many ways seen as the centre of the Protestant Reformation, where it all kicked off and started from. Yes, we did. We uh, visited there a number of times, and then we lived there in 2019. And uh, so we we lived right on the the Elba River, uh, which flows through the town. We got on our my wife and I would jump on our push bikes each day and ride through the town past the famous uh, churches and um, monuments and uh, through to the uh, the archive centre and the, the library, which is housed in the castle at Wittenberg. And of course, the castle church is where Luther. Uh, posted his 95 theses. And so we, yeah, we spent each day looking through the history of the town and the, uh, what happened in the town that, that changed the course of religious history. Now, Wittenberg obviously is a, 
a central part of the story of the Reformation. So I would imagine that this would be, you know, one of the best locations to study the Reformation, the history of the Reformation from. Wittenberg and St. Andrews, are these pretty much the two best locations if you want to study the Reformation uh, in the world? Yes, and there's also a library at a, in a German town called Wolfenbüttel, and that houses the most Reformation books, original Reformation books. So uh, that's a that's a great library to go to. Well, as well as and we live there also, and spend time in that library uh, each day. Uh, Neil, you've just been living the dream. As you, I mean, this is this is just <laughs> amazing stuff. Uh, yeah. It's fantastic. Hey, Neil, I have to ask your researching Reformation history, uh, some of that research obviously you're doing in Germany, in Wittenberg, etc., going through these old libraries. How much Latin and German did you have to be able to master to be able to read these, you know, original documents and so forth? Yeah. Well, one good thing is that we didn't have to speak, um, speak it but read it. Um, mind you, mine is not that flash because it's not only German and Latin, it's old German and old Latin. And so I got some help um, along the way with translators helping me um, understand uh, a number of these uh, documents. Yeah, that would be uh, – I, I can't even imagine the level of challenge that would be for me. Languages is not my thing, so you have my utmost respect there. So you've been, you've been studying at, you know, premier – locations and universities, history of the Reformation. I want to talk about some of the uh, discoveries that you've made. And one of the ones that particularly interests me that you know, you've been sharing with me is in relationship to the second coming of Jesus and the resurrection. So these are two topics that are you know, critically important in the time in which we live right now. Obviously, a lot of people are talking about the return of Jesus right now because we can see the signs being fulfilled. The return of Jesus... Was this something that the reformers talked about, or was this something that was just too far off in the future for them to even consider? Oh, no, like they believed that, that uh, the world was going to end in their day. So they, uh, the resurrection was very important to them. And, and one of the reasons was is because death was so real. Uh, it's, uh, I think the average life expectancy was 30. Uh, I saw on the news the other day that here in Australia, uh, that our life expectancy is around the 80 mark. Uh, well, theirs was 30. And particularly children, infants died. Um, and so the number of, of, uh, of children and who died was so high. Martin Luther himself lost two of his children. Uh, and so the artists of the day would paint a lot of works of art showing Jesus to children and also, they would paint uh, the resurrection, say, of the Bible story, the son of the widow of Nain. And they'd put this up in churches so that families, when they went to church, could see the hope of their children being resurrected. And because they were students, uh, they got uh, students of Bible prophecy, Daniel and Revelation, uh, the Reformers uh, could see things uh, happening around them, and and they believe that the world was going to end uh, very soon. And so the thought that Jesus would raise their children and, and their loved ones from the dead, and the world was going to end soon, and so this would happen soon, was something that really motivated them and, and excited them greatly. 
Now this is a this is this is strange to me because when I look at you know Christian thought in that particular era, when I look at what the Catholic Church was teaching, uh, this seems to be a major contrast to what was being church- taught within Christianity, uh, you know, in the 16th century. Yes, it was, Lyle, and and one of the big factors there is that the uh, the Church of the day uh, taught that when you die, um, <laughs> you're either going to end up burning eternally in hell or you end up in this place called purgatory where you would be sort of uh, refined uh, through suffering and pain for up to, up to thousands of years. And so people feared death. They were scared of death because, uh, it, 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 yeah, the next thing didn't, uh, wasn't too promising. And so when Luther came along and posted his 95 theses, these, these propositions or theses we're saying, look, enough's enough. This business of going to purgatory and buying indulgences uh, where you sort of buy your way into, into heaven is, is not right. It's not according to the Bible. And this has to change. And uh, so uh, the thought that you are saved by uh, a free gift, the grace of God, and not by... Um, some declaration by a priest or, or the Pope or buying some paper that you're filling your name and the date and then you do a number of Hail Marys and prayers and uh, learn certain um, documents off by heart and so on. It's a, a means to get you into heaven. This was such beautiful news that even when people went to funerals, Lyle, it was, it was a celebration of the thought that soon the world is going to end and uh, we'd be raised um, perfectly and be able to live forever without any purgatory. When you when you research that level of fear that they had at that particular time, it must give you an insight into the power that, you know, things like interdict would have had over the population when, you know, the Pope would at times just cut off effectively any access to heaven for a particular population for a time period. Yeah, indeed. And even in the uh, the town church of Wittenberg, um, before it became Protestant, there was a big uh, sculpture of a very angry God leading from the church to the graveyard, which was just outside of the church. And this was this was their mindset. They feared death so much. And as you say, they, they feared the, the Pope. Um, because of the power of the priest and the Pope to determine where, where they were going to end up. Now, coming back to Martin Luther and his understanding of the resurrection, you know, the, the concept of a resurrection and the immortality of the soul are two concepts that seem to be in contradiction to each other. Did Martin Luther recognise this contradiction and where did he stand on this issue? Yeah, he, he was a little bit puzzled by it. Overall, he had perhaps a different view to what maybe you and I would have, Lyle, in that he believed that there's a difference between the body and then you had a a soul where we would believe that the Lord created us and we became a soul. Um, But he also believed that when somebody died, uh, that soul basically goes to sleep and until the resurrection. Uh, now, he, he was a little bit puzzled because he'd say, well, okay, well, how come Moses and, you know, with the trans, the story of the transfiguration that the Bible refers to, 
and here are people from the Old Testament who are now alive. And so he was he was wondering how that all fitted together. But his overall view was that when you died, you're asleep. It's like you're asleep. And the next thing you know it will be the resurrection. Has the Lutheran Church maintained that position through to modern times? I don't think so. Uh, in fact, basically, the Protestant, many of the Protestant churches today believe that uh, when you die, your part of you, say your soul or spirit, goes up to heaven, and then uh, so there's yeah, there's a, a difference of view there, and certainly the Calvinists um, believe that. Um, during that time of the of the Reformation, so um, yeah, I think Luther's original view has has waned somewhat. But there are there are people who who still hold to that view, mm. um, and uh, certainly as I study the Bible and uh, Lyle, I, I see that the, the beautiful truth that when we uh, die, the next thing we know will be the resurrection of Christ. And uh, we don't need to look down on all the the, the pain and the, the sadness on earth that uh, that is all around us today. It was, so it, it's it's a beautiful thought uh, that the Bible teaches on this. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, and one of the things that fascinates me when I travel through Europe and I go through, you know, some of these old cathedrals and whatnot, and particularly Gothic cathedrals that are just absolutely full of skulls and bones and skeletons and all of this emphasis on death. Why, why were people so, why, why are churches, which is supposed to be a place of, of joy and celebration and praise and worship, why were so many of these churches just so focused on death uh, at, at, during this era? Well, uh, many of those churches have those skulls and bones and, and references to them because they worshipped uh, saints. And so a number of these skulls and bones are of those, well, reportedly of those saints. Even St. Andrews, where we lived uh, in Scotland, it's called St. Andrews because St. Andrew, reportedly, his his uh, bones uh, were taken to St. Andrews. And so pilgrimages um, came all the way through to St. Andrews. And even if you look at the Scottish flag today, uh, it's the cross of St. Andrew that is featured on the Scottish flag. So important was this um, business of worshipping saints. And so that's why, part of the reason why they had so many of these bones is because they worshipped the saints. Whereas when the Reformation came along, they said, listen, it's, it's time to stop worshipping uh, saints. We need to, or, or, or popes or anything like that, we need to be worshipping Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And even Luther said, listen, don't worship me. I'm, I'm just a human being. Uh, worship God. That's the only one you should, should, should worship. And God lives. Yes, indeed. Neil, it's fascinating to just consider what was actually happening in the Reformation at that particular time in relationship to 
the state of the dead, the resurrection and the return of Christ. Often we look at the resurrection, sorry, the reformation as being, you know, about salvation by grace, the Bible alone, these kinds of issues. But I love the emphasis that you've put on this and the areas that you've investigated, which are so relevant to our day when Jesus truly is coming back soon and the resurrection truly is going to be something that we will get to experience in a very short space of time. The signs that Jesus is coming back are certainly all around us right now. Indeed. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.